You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right, good morning, church. Y'all grab a seat. Um, it's good to see you guys here. Thank you for your faithfulness. Always want to let you know we appreciate you prioritizing Sunday morning and coming to be with us at church. Um, we're going to be in the book of Genesis today. Um, our church is going through the book of Genesis basically the entire year, just verse by verse. It's a 50-chapter book, so it's kind of lengthy. And so we're covering larger chunks of this book. And uh, today I'm going to be covering a chapter and a half. Um, so the second half of chapter 14 and all of chapter 15, and I've been at the beach all week. It's been a while since I've preached, so buckle up, and I'll see if I can remember what I prepped before I went to the beach. But um, the, the series we're in is called Saints and Villains, as we look at uh, the saints of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, and also um, how, how God showed grace to them and their mistakes and their, their mess-ups and, and how, how God works through their lives. And, um, and we're in the third section of it, which is uh, looking at the stories of a man named Abram. At the point we're at in chapter 14 and 15, he's still named Abram. Uh, spoiler alert, later God is going to change his name to Abraham. Uh, from father of a nation is what Abram means, to father of many nations. He will change his name to Abraham, which means that. And, um, and, and what I want you to see uh, mainly, the main point in today's sermon that I want you to take home with you is God's promise to Abram, and thereby his promise and, and his faithfulness to us as well. Um, the word that, that's used to describe that most commonly in Scripture is covenant. Uh, maybe the best example in our society of that is a marriage, um, how we stand before witnesses when we get married and we make covenants or vows. We say vows to one another. Those are promises, and we, um, we honor those, hopefully, uh, till death do we part. And, and here, God is continuing to establish his promise, his covenant with Abram. And in today's sermon, I want you to see that God keeps his promises to Abram. Even at a time when it feels like he's not going to keep that promise, God comes through. And I want you to apply it to your own life and understand and know the, the, the true fact that God will keep his promises to you as well, personally, for you. Uh, the promises of God's word apply and are for us as well. Now, many times in our life, we, we encounter circumstances or trials or um, really difficult times. And what, what tends to happen is, is when we uh, encounter what I would call a roadblock, it's usually a result of our refusal to walk in and or believe in the promises of God from Scripture. That, that um, For example, if we refuse to walk in God's morality, God has revealed to us right and wrong uh, what the moral law is, and he's promised that it's best. And when we refuse to walk in the promise of, of that being the best uh, way for us to live, um, then, then the natural consequences of breaking God's moral law come to the surface. Um, if you've got kids, you know that you need to make rules. Amen? Parents, we, we have to make rules. And, and you try to communicate to your kids, right? I'm, I'm not making this rule to ruin your life. They never believe you until they become adults. Then they look back and they're like, well, really, when they have kids, they believe you because then they have to make rules as well. But the rules aren't there to ruin the lives of children, although it might feel like that to the children. The rules are there to protect the children, to make their life safe and profitable and well. And, and the same with God's morality and his law. He's given it to us for our benefit and for our good to bless us, not to restrain us. Um, secondly, if, if we refuse to rely on God in prayer, 
Uh, if, we, if we encounter hardship or trials or circumstances and we um, just try to go at it and fix it ourselves rather than take it to the Lord and rely on Him, then, then we're met with a lack of an answer to the problem that we face. When God has promised to meet our needs for us and He's told us to take everything to Him, and what I want you to apply today is that when you refuse to acknowledge God's promises in Scripture and don't live in God's promises, it won't go well for you. Um, and if you do acknowledge the promises, it will go better, but it's not always peachy. Amen? Um, even when you live in God's will, sometimes it can be very difficult. And we'll see both of those in today's text. I have three things I want you to see um, in three sections of the passage that we're going to look at. Number one, we'll look at a priestly king. If anyone's expecting... Um, and, and you need a boy name. Melchizedek is his name. Really strong male name. If you need one of those, you can call him Mel for short. Um, Melchizedek is a guy that we're going to be talking about today, a, and he is a priestly king. Secondly, we'll look at a faithful father. That's Abraham. Um, God begins to teach Abram what it's going to take to father a nation. And thirdly, we'll look at a promised sacrifice as a ritual or a ceremony of animal sacrifice happens, which can be a little bit weird for our uh, modern time to look at, but I want to explain that to you and teach it to you um, so that you can make sense of it, okay? Um, let's jump right in. First point, a priestly king. Now, um, at where we pick up in chapter 14, verse 17, I want to want to recap like previously on saints and villains, okay? Um, Jeremy preached last week about these buccaneers, um, like Pirates of the Caribbean. If you were here last week, there were these five kings of the Dead Sea. Just like if, if you want to start, if anyone in here wants to start a metal band, please use that as your, your band name. Five kings of the Dead Sea. Um, and so what, what had happened is Abram and his nephew Lot, uh, they come back from Egypt and God had blessed them. They had livestock and people and they were so numerous and their possessions were so large that they couldn't dwell in the land together. So they had to go their separate ways. Um, Abram let Lot choose and he chose to go toward what he thought was safety and wealth of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings that surrounded them and surrounded the Dead Sea, the five kings of the Dead Sea. What we know happened uh, from the, the history we see in the Bible is that four kings from the north come down and defeat those kings. They, they uh, destroy the cities and they carry away um, Lot and his family. Um, they become prisoners of war. Abram, in an act of grace, kind of gathers this, this band of, of uh, soldiers and goes and rescues his nephew and not only rescues his, he and his family, but also brings back all of the bounty as well. All the possessions, all the stuff, uh, brings it back. And where we pick up today is on the heels of that victory. After that battle, they come back to what's called the King's Valley. The kings gather in a place of royalty with Abram, and um, this valley is just southeast of modern-day Jerusalem. And they gather in this valley in between the city of Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, and they gather together, and there's this guy that comes out, and this is just like Lord of the Rings, like Middle-earth type stuff happening. That's just how I see it in my mind. So if you're a nerd, uh, pay attention. It's really cool. Um, and, and so this guy named Melchizedek comes out, um, and he's an interesting character. And so let's read about him in chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. It says, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. That's important. We'll come back to that. And he blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, this kind of seems normal at first glance. It's a very Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings type thing to do is to gather in a valley. That's just like, you know, the scenery's great, the swelling score of the music comes in, the defeat has happened, right? And, but, but here's some unusual things that happen. And then in the next several verses, 21 through 24, the king of Sodom tries to uh, thank Abram by giving him a lot of the bounty. Like, you take it. Um, Abram doesn't take it. But Melchizedek doesn't doesn't bless Abram by giving him stuff. He blesses Abram by pronouncing a covenantal blessing upon him. He, he blesses him just with a proclamation, not with, not with a possession. Um, now, the reason this is interesting is because we don't really have any indication that Melchizedek and Abram are like buddies, that they know each other. And so here's just this like strange kingly priest guy coming out to the valley and he's like, blessed be Abram. And, and not only does he not give Abram anything, but he actually receives an offering from Abram. And so Abram is worshiping. He's not worshiping Melchizedek. He's worshiping God through Melchizedek. And so there's, there's definitely some interesting stuff going on here. I want to take a moment to unpack it. Let me remind you, that as I have many times in the book of Genesis, the best commentator on the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And so when we encounter um, Lord of the Rings type passages and we don't know what they mean, it's really helpful to see what the New Testament has to say in explaining that. Thankfully, there are a lot of verses that I don't have time to read in the New Testament about this guy named Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7, um, if you want to jot this down, this would be great for you to read uh, later today or this week. Um, you can read the entire chapter. Basically, the entire chapter is about Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. That chapter begins like this. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about Melchizedek, even explaining what his name means, because he compares Melchizedek to Jesus. Melchizedek, the name, means king of righteousness, and the city he comes from, Salem, sounds really similar to Shalom. They were used interchangeably in the Hebrew language, um, which means peace. Shalom is translated as peace. And so Abram is blessed by the king of righteousness and the king of peace, a foreshadowing of our blessing from the king of righteousness and the king of peace, Jesus Christ. Abram then gives uh, possessions and money and, and wealth to Melchizedek as, a, as an act of worship. He gives a tithe. The, the word tithe, if you've ever heard that in church, comes from an old English word which means tenth or ten percent. Um, you may have noticed at our church, we don't pass around a collection plate um, shaking you down for your money. The reason that we don't do that is because we believe it is for a covenantal relationship. At our church, we, we have covenant membership. And so we have people who have expressly said, we want to be a member of this local church. And in that membership, they give as an act of worship. They sacrifice from their finances and their wealth uh, to honor God by using that, uh, that money for ministry. Uh, we don't feel the need, if you're just like new here, to shake you down. We, we don't need your money. Um, that's not why we want you to come here. We want you to hear the good news of Jesus. Um, but, but this covenantal giving is throughout the Bible. 
giving of a tenth of of all of your possessions and your resources and your wealth. It is throughout Scripture that that is a valid way of worship. And so Abram is very clearly worshiping God through a priest, Melchizedek, by giving a tenth of what he had received uh, from this battle. Verse 3 of the Hebrews passage says, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. This is where it starts to get weird. Uh, Melchizedek has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so he doesn't have a mom or a dad. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. Like, is he an alien? What's happening here in this valley, right? Um, now, some think that this is a theophany, and because the author of Hebrews says that he doesn't have father or mother, or he doesn't have beginning or end, that this is just an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, that's a valid view, but that's not the view that I hold to. Um, the reason I don't hold to that view is because Abram had already seen Jesus. Um, if you remember when we looked at Genesis chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abram. Abram had already laid eyes on Jesus, I believe. And so, um, so I don't think Melchizedek is uh, Jesus. I don't think he's an angel. I think he's a man um, whose, whose history was mysterious. It was unknown that God had placed at a particular place and a particular time to foreshadow and, and illustrate what the greater king and priest would be, Jesus Christ. Um, and so not only is he a mysterious man, but he brings out mysterious stuff. He walks out in the valley with bread and wine. Um, now, why does he do that? Of course, on this side of the cross, we can see the significance of bread and wine. We see it every Sunday at our church, the significance of bread and wine. Um, we call it communion, that Jesus used bread and wine to illustrate his body and his blood as he was given as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. And bread and wine, again, just like the tithe, is throughout the Bible. Um, Hebrews actually tells us that this is meant to foreshadow Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, what that means is, after the order of Melchizedek, means Jesus is better and greater, but he is like Melchizedek. In that, he is both a king and a priest. Now, in Old Testament law, there was, uh, there was a, a strict divide between the roles of king and priest. You couldn't be both. It was against God's law for any person to serve in the role of priest and king. Um, and that kind of makes sense because, I mean, like you wouldn't want your pastor to also be your mayor right? Like the guy that you talk to about your sin struggles telling you about, you know, how, how high your grass gets or, you know, when you got to mow next or whatever. You don't, want, you don't want to intermingle those things. And so God had separated them. And throughout all of history, there have only been two uh, men who have ever lived who were both priest and king, and they are Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And so through Melchizedek, God is foreshadowing the eternal relationship between the church and Jesus, even before Jesus and his incarnation. Jesus too would, be, would come as a king and a priest and make a covenant of blessing with bread and wine. And he would institute it at the Last Supper in Jerusalem. As he goes to Jerusalem to ultimately be arrested and crucified, he gathers his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem and he, and he hands out, he breaks bread and hands it out and passes around a cup of wine and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. 
And it's interesting that this happens in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a compound word in Hebrew of the words Yeru and Shalom, meaning city and peace. Yeru, Shalom, Jerusalem. And in ancient language, it was just shortened to Shalom or Salem. And so Melchizedek walks out of the city of peace, Yeru, Shalom, Jerusalem, to bring the bread and wine. And so it's a beautiful picture that we can see on this side of the cross that, that God has foreshadowed his promise to be fulfilled, not just in animal sacrifice, but in the sacrifice of his own son. Hebrews 7.22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, which means that we have great cause for worship because Jesus has paid all of our sin debt for us. We don't have to bring anything. We don't have to sacrifice an animal. There is no more blood to be spilled. Um, it is represented merely in, blood, in, in bread and wine. Uh, bread and wine was given to Abram in this valley. Bread and wine was then present in the tabernacle after the children of Israel left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness. As they built the temple, uh, there was bread and wine present at all times in the temple. And then Jesus gives bread and wine to his disciples to represent his body and blood. And today on these tables among us is bread and wine representing that we are a spiritual city of peace with God given to us by the king of righteousness. Doesn't God write a good story? It's a beautiful picture. Now, God foreshadows the covenant through this bread and wine, which probably just phew, goes right over Abram's head. He's like, thanks for the wine, boss, and, and goes on his way. And in chapter 15, we see Abram uh, re, uh, reinstituted by God and his covenant of this promise of offspring, that Abram will become a father. And so the second point is a faithful Father. Verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so God's giving Abram a reminder of the promise that he had originally given him when he called him. When uh, God called Abram in chapter 12, he called him to leave his land, leave everything he'd ever known. And God was going to give him, namely, two things uh, a lot of land and a lot of offspring. Um, at this point, though, Abram had not seen either of those promises come to fruition, and it had been years. It wasn't just like a few weeks, and, and you know, Abram was just kind of anxiously waiting. It had been years, and there were no children, and the land that he was in, he was a sojourner in, and he didn't even get to spend the whole time there. And so the promised land didn't quite look like all it was promised to be. Um, you guys, most of you know, I went to the beach this week, and it was cold at the beach. It, it, it became like the desert here, it was like, I guess y'all had like 100 degree weather like, and, and complaining about it, right? And I see y'all on Facebook complaining about it and we're sitting down at the beach in like 59 degree weather with hoodies on the beach freezing to death, right? And so it just wasn't all that we had expected it to be. And Abram, when he gets to the promised land, it's probably the same way. He'd probably had to convince Sarai to go in the first place. Like, honey, I promise it's gonna be nice. God's given us all these blessings and they get there. There's other nations living in the land. They end up with famine. They're, the weather's not good enough for them to grow sustenance and crops. There is war. And worst of all, they still don't have children that God had promised them. And this is years now. And so naturally, Abram begins to get a little bit concerned. God, are you actually going to do all the things that you promised you're going to do? He had seen God. He had heard God. But God hadn't done what God said he was going to do. In Genesis 15, 2, Abram expresses his concern. 
And he says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Eliezer's sitting over there like, hey, this doesn't sound like a bad deal to me. <laughs> like he's inheriting everything. And Abram's like, I don't want to give all my stuff to Eli when I die. And, um, and God, God is um, going to assure Abram of the promise. Now, I don't know if you've had moments in your life, you probably have, like, like I have, and like most of us I'm sure have, where, where we, we hit maybe a roadblock or a wall and we just really feel like things aren't going the way that we expected them to go. You've been there? And, and, and what, what popular Christianity does is, is it conditions us and tries to train us to kind of stand up a little taller and puff our chest out and be stronger, right? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Tim Tebow told me I could do it, okay? Well, the reality of Scripture is we see time and time and time again that the model that's given of righteousness is, is honesty and even frustration at times. It's Abram, and, and Abram's not in sin here when he's like, God, are you actually going to do what you said you were going to do? When he doubts God. We've, we've, we've tried really hard to be a church that says there are lots of passages in the Bible that are full of, of voicing frustrations to God. God knows your heart anyways. You might as well be honest with him. And when you're not seeing the things that you expected to see, God wants to see your desperation. Here's what I used to do when I used to get desperate for God to hear from God. I, I knew I needed to hear from God's word, so I would do this. I'd get my Bible, I'd go in my room, and I'd just open it to a random verse. Y'all ever do that? I'd be like, God, speak to me. i open it up, and it'd be like some weird verse in Psalms. And lo, I have a painful disease in my loins. And I'm like, I don't know why this is supposed to speak to me right now. Let me try it again, you know. And I'd heard the Gideons talk about, like, all these miraculous times. The Bible fell open to just the right verse. Well, it didn't happen for me, right? And, and, and I, I'm not telling you you need to ask God for a sign, but what I am telling you is that God wants to see you in your desperation because when you show God how desperate you are to be used by him, that's exactly where you need to be to be used by him. And at the moments of need in our life, it's not good to demand a sign, but it is good to express our heart's desire to God, to worship him, to serve him. And notice Abram's not walking away here. He's just saying, I don't understand your plan. Verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to him, answers him. God says to him, this man shall not be your heir. Sorry, Eli. Your very own son shall be your heir. So God reminds him again. I've lost count of how many times in just five chapters or so of Genesis that God has reminded him of the promise that he gave him at the very beginning. I promise I will fulfill it. And when you feel like God is not coming through, his promise is good. His promise still stands. Verse 5 says, he brought him outside. And to, to show him, he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number him. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So you say, Abram, not only will you have a son, but you're, the nation that is going to come from you is going to be so vast and so great and so numerous that you will not be able to count them. I, I love this story because we had read the scriptures and, and taught it to our kids. And when Teva, my youngest son, when he was four years old, 
one time. He said, Dad, so when, when God showed you the stars, you only counted, you could only count to five? And I was like, what the heck are you talking about, kid? Like, kids say weird stuff. And it was just out of context. We hadn't been talking about Abraham or anything, but he just brings the Abrahamic covenant in out of nowhere at age four. And he's like, yeah, because like with how God did with Abraham, he showed him the stars, and that's how many kids he was going to have. And I was like, yeah, I didn't want to count any higher than five, buddy. And... Um, <laughs> So I counted to five, and that's, that's how he thought babies came about, right? You just look in the stars and count however many you want, and then they show up. Um, but, but Abram believes God in this instance, and, and he would, in fact, have a nation as numerous as the stars. The, the history in the Bible tells us this. Deuteronomy 10, uh, Moses says this to Israel. He says, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Hebrews 11 also affirms it. Therefore, one man and him as good as dead, kind of a crass way to say Abram was old, uh, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. And so as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. See, Hebrews 11 has been nicknamed the Hall of Fame of Faith. And the reason is, the reason that Abram is there is because when God said something to him, made a promise to him that seemingly would never happen, he believed him. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, notice the conditions of the covenant or the promise to Abram. There are none. This is a great picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. God comes to us and he says, I'm going to make you a child in my family. I am going to give you eternal life. All the things you've done wrong against me, all the sin you've committed, I am going to do away with it. Matter of fact, I'm going to put it on my own son and let him pay for it at the cross. He's going to raise from the dead and I'm just going to give all of this to you for free. And Christians be like, yeah, but what's the catch? Yeah, but how many rules does our church need to have? Yeah, but, but how many times do I got to go to Sunday school? Or how many uh, wrongs do I have to make up for by more rights to outweigh them? And we add to the gospel, and that just makes it not gospel at all. It's not good news at all if I have to work for it because I'll never be good enough for it. But the good news, the gospel, is there are no prerequisites to receive this grace from God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. And so Abram just believes God. And, and the Bible says God counted it to Abram as being righteous. Not because he was perfect. Not because he had done a lot of good stuff. He'd actually done a lot of bad stuff. But he was counted as righteous because he trusted God. Galatians 3 says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that, this is, that, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so the Bible calls our salvation. If you're born again, if you're a Christian, you know what the Bible calls your salvation? Adoption. Adoption into the family of Abraham. Not so you can be tied to a, a Jewish man that lived thousands of years ago. No, it's so you can be tied to the one that he worshipped, the one that met him in the desert, the one that he gave to and sacrificed for, Jesus Christ. 
Now, Abram couldn't possibly comprehend all this at the time. He's just, he was just over here counting stars, trying to figure out, I'm going to have a lot of kids, right? It was a mystery to him and the entire Old Testament church, although there were enough whispers of it to produce faith. But God comforts him in his role in all of this, his role in God's plan, because before Abram would become a father, he would have to learn to be a trusting son. And the years that he spent waiting on God's promise to come to fruition, this is ultimately what God is teaching him. Before I'll make you a father of a great nation, before I'll make you a father of many nations, I'm going to make you a faithful, trusting son. You see, what God wants to use us for is to spiritually parent other people, to make disciples. That's what the Great Commission is. And before you can be a spiritual parent to someone, you have to be a spiritual child to God first, trusting the promises of your heavenly father. And some of you want to be used by God greatly, but you have not spent any time just trusting the Father for your own life first. And he comforts Abraham, and just as a father would a son, he tells him of some dreadful things that are going to come, but he comforts him in those things. Verse 12 says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said, to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God's speaking of their, their slavery in Egypt that would come. If you know anything from Sunday school, this, this actually comes to happen. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, what we learn here is that God's promises are not without their hardships. That God's promise is not your health, wealth, and prosperity. God's promise isn't that your life is going to be as easy as it could possibly be. Matter of fact, God promises you great spiritual blessings and an eternal inheritance, but in this life, in this world, he promises you great trouble and great persecution you see, what happens is in our lives, we want the promised reward without any perseverance at all, without having any difficulty in our life at all. That's not how God operates. God, in an example here, foretells that the nation that would come from Abram would grow numerous, not in the promised land, but in a foreign nation as slaves. Why would God grow the nation that he had promised in Egypt rather than the promised land? Because God is a God of redemption. And even in redeeming Israel out of Egypt, he is again foreshadowing how Jesus will uh, pull us out of the slavery of our sin and into his promised family. And now God's going to seal all of this that we've talked about, the bread and the wine and, and the, the offspring and the land and everything that he's told to Abram. He's going to seal it. He's going to make it official um, in, in point three here, a promised sacrifice. Now, in, in our modern era, signatures are commonplace, right? We sign, stuff, we sign our names when we buy a home, when we buy real estate, when we buy cars, any kind of contract that we enter into, we sign our name. And your signature is unique. By the way, on the scroll in the back, the announcement scroll, I wasn't lying, just so you guys know, your pastors ain't lying, that, that is my handwriting back there. I just wrote the announcements, and then Josh came up to me and he said, do you want me to make that look good? Oh, I thought it looked fine. And then, and then I thought he was just going to rip it off and like start fresh. But he took, he took my depravity and he made it into something beautiful. There's a whole gospel message on the scroll today. And, 
And so he just like drew around my, my writing and, and made it look good. Um, but, but all of our handwriting is unique, and, and that's, that's why we sign things. But, but in, in Abram's time, signatures were not part of society. That wasn't how they, um, that wasn't how they, they entered into you know, contracts or covenants or treaties or anything like that. It was a little more weird back then. Imagine, you know, Lord of the Rings stuff again. Um, and what they did was, you know, naturally, if we didn't have a pen, like, well, do we have some animals we can saw in half? That seems to make sense. And so this is what they did. Um, when God wants to ratify the covenant, he, tells, he gives Abram instructions to get animals. Let's read. I skipped over verses 7 through 11, but let's read these. It says, God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's basically asking God, can you sign something? I want, some, I want this in writing. I want some paperwork, right? And he said to him, well, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each other, uh, each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, notice God just tells him to get the animals. He doesn't tell him what to do with the animals. So Abram already knows what he's supposed to do. The reason is, is because this was the standard of entering into any sort of agreement in the ancient East. Um, Abram is not doing something that was unfamiliar to him. When God said, go get these animals, Abram's like, oh, cool. We're going to have a treaty here. We're going to have a covenant. We're going to have an agreement that God is going to pledge with me. Um, now, I believe that this, uh, this ceremony actually came from God. Some people think it came from somewhere else. Either way, God is using a ceremony that was very familiar to Abram. You can actually read about covenants happening and treaties between nations uh, being agreed upon like this outside of the Bible. It's not just a Bible thing. Now, what would happen is you would cut the animals in half, and as you, as you put half the animal on one side, half the animal on the other side, you would have an aisle between them, a pathway of blood. Um, I know it's pretty gross, but, but what they would do is the two parties who were entering into an agreement would walk together down that aisle, almost like a, a, a walking the aisle of a wedding, a covenant, and they would walk through that blood, and the reason they would do that is they would say, if I break this covenant, may what happen to these animals happen to me. The gruesome death of the animals was meant to be a vivid reminder of how serious the promise was that they were entering into. That's the, that's the ceremony that's happening here. Um, it's actually the ceremony where we get the saying, blood is thicker than water. Now, when we say that, what we mean is I'm loyal to my family over everybody else. You know, we got that backwards. Um, the original saying is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. What, it, what, its, what its original intention was, was that selected relationships voluntarily entered into were, were to take precedence over even familial relationships. Uh, we've got it backwards. We, we're, we, you know, really who got it right is Dom from Fast and Furious when he gathers together. He's like, we family, right? Because his family was who he chose to be with, right? And, and that's the idea here. And so not just by birth, but, but by choice, God is entering into a covenant with Abram and those who would be of faith after him. Now, I promise I'm almost done, but you've got to get this. Traditionally, Abram and God would have walked together down the aisle of blood. But Abram doesn't pass through the animals. Only God does. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down, 
and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. These images were representations of God. Um, Some would say that it points to the pillar of cloud or smoke and the pillar of fire that led them as they returned back to the land that this happened in. The fire, I think, represents God's spirit. Moses spoke to God through a burning bush on the day of Pentecost. The spirit comes down and and fills believers, and and it's said to look like fire. Um, and, And as we look at this, a smoking pot, smoking furnace, and a torch clearly represent the Lord. And God is saying, I will make people of faith my people, and they will respond by worshiping me. And if this covenant is broken... Death is the penalty. Now, since Abram didn't pass through the Isle of Blood, only God did, that means that the coming death of sacrifice would not be man, it would be God himself. And so how does that make sense? Death was only supposed to come to the one who broke the covenant, and God surely did not break his end of the bargain. Man broke his end of the bargain. All of us, every man and woman who has ever lived, broke our covenant that God made with mankind by sinning against mankind. And so what did God do? God became man. Jesus was born so that he could take on the sin of man, to put it up on his shoulders and walk up a mountain, to die on a cross so that he could pay the sacrificial penalty for all of our sins. The breaking of covenant was placed on the Son of God not on the sons of Abraham. And if the Bible were a movie, Jesus would sit down with his disciples, and he'd be like, we family. He'd be like, Dom. And, and as, he, as he gets with his disciples in Jerusalem, Yerushalom, the city of peace, he breaks bread, and he hands it out to him. He says, this is my body. And he pours out wine, he passes a cup around, he says, this is my blood of a new covenant. If the Bible were a movie, there would, you know, everyone loves a good plot twist at the end of a movie. There would be an immediate flashback to Melchizedek walking down the hill into that valley with bread and wine. And it was like God was telling us all along that the covenant was going to be provided by God Himself, that we weren't going to have to work for it, that God was going to do all of the work for us and all we had to do the entire time. We've made it so complicated. The whole time, all we had to do was what Genesis 15, 6 says. Believe God. Believe Him. And it'll be counted to us as righteousness. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you've been trying to be a Christian, you've been trying to read your Bible and pray all the time, and you, you try to read through Genesis, and you get to Exodus or Leviticus, and it's weird, and you don't do your Bible in a year, and you, do, you can't come to church faithfully, and you're, you're just trying all this stuff, and you can't get it right, it's because you're a failure and a sinner, and Christianity's never meant for you to just improve yourself. It's meant for you to throw yourself at the feet of the perfect one, Jesus Christ, because he's done it all for you. That's what the covenant is. That's what the promise of God is. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.